it's interesting to me how many lawyers I hear from that want to have a seven figure practice, want to make a million dollars as gross. And there isn't the same understanding of how to be profitable or what it actually takes for that. That's part of why I'm super excited to have Brooke Lively here today. We're going to talk about the three levers to pull to create a more profitable firm. I'm also super excited to have her here today because literally the last conference we were at, somebody did this whole presentation and gave a huge shout out to Brooke, not even knowing she was there. So all of us are like, oh, Brooke Lively, this sounds so cool. And then realized Brooke was speaking like whatever it was three hours later. So obviously um, she's been involved in some amazing things and gave a phenomenal presentation. For those of you that don't know her, she's the founder of Cathedral Capital, a team of CFOs and profitability strategists who help entrepreneurs turn their businesses into profitable companies. She's highly regarded. She's a highly regarded international speaker and author with expertise in growth management, creative problem solving, and profitable strategy. She's been featured in international media, including Forbes, CNBC, and U.S. News and World Reports. Brooke, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into your story, but before that, I do want to talk about our last episode for five seconds or so. It was a great episode. We had Chris Dreyer on. Uh, Chris talked to us about SEO insider tips for getting serious cases. And seriously, I tend to think that a lot of SEO... Recording in progress. Um, I tend to think that a lot of SEO stuff is like snake oil salespeople. And so it was really cool to have Chris on because he truly understands it. And it's so interesting to hear the way he frames it versus the spammy emails that we all get about ranking page one on Google without anything actually into it. So if you actually want to know about SEO, what it really is, what it truly takes, great episode to watch. Uh, But don't do that now because we've got Brooke here live to answer all of your questions and talk about being a more profitable firm. So Brooke, we're going to dive into our topic today. Before that, I want to hear a little bit more about your story. What led you to running Cathedral Capital? I, you know, I think like a lot of people, it was a combination of two things. One, it was kind of an accident, right? I mean, we all kind of started our, our business as an accident. And the other one was I wasn't in a great situation. I was working for my father's law firm. I was running it. And, you know, it, this was 10 years ago and it wasn't in Arizona today. So as a non-attorney, I couldn't own it. So here I am building a business that I can't own and participate in. And at the same time, I had hired someone to help. I hired a consultant to help with sales and marketing. And his clients started coming to me and saying, can you do for us what you're doing for your father's firm? And that was really when I realized that attorneys don't run their law firms by the numbers, right? I mean, y'all went to law school because you were promised no numbers, right? Uh, except for the giant student loan number at the end, but. The giant student loan number, well, and there is one math formula that any attorney is really good at, and that is figuring out what one third of any number is. There we go. I love it. And if it goes to litigation, some of you can figure out what 40% of that number is. So, um, yeah, so I started just by, because I had people asking. It's a great way to do it, right? Like you, we always talk about that social listening concept and it seems so esoteric for so many people, but for you, it's like literally, please, Brooke, help us do exactly what you're already doing, but for us. Yeah. And one of the things I found is that attorneys have fairly good gut instincts. Like you guys... You, you know how your business is going and you very often know where the problem is. The issue that comes up 
is that you make a decision based on your gut instinct. And then during dinner that night with your family, you're like, Ooh, is that the right thing to do? Is that not the right thing to do? And then you wake up at 2 AM and then you make the decision all over again the next day in the middle of a, you know, while you're defending a deposition and like, it just goes on and on. And what we found is if you make that decision based on data, you make it once which means that you can make that decision and move past and go to the next obstacle or the next problem or the next cool thing that you want to do. And to be, to be totally candid, I find the best, the best moment. Like I don't, I guess, I guess I care about being right. Maybe that's the point of this, but like, I always love when you have that gut feeling, like, I think this is a better way. I think we should do this. And then you pull your numbers and you're like, Oh my God, the numbers support what I already wanted them to say. Exactly. Um, there's nothing better. Well, and the numbers almost always support, but they give additional clarity. They give you more depth. They give you a little bit more information than you might've had before. And that's, that's awesome because it gives you that security to move forward. So I know we're talking about the three levers to pull to make yep. a more profitable firm. So I think before I ask the thousand follow-up questions I want to from that, what are the three levers? Because I feel like uh, my follow-up questions are gonna fit into that framework. All right, so there are three levers. The first is predicting your revenue. Whether you are an hourly firm or you are a PI contingency firm, learning how to predict your revenue is incredibly important. Um, hourly firms, it's easy to do. What's everybody's billing goal? What, um, do we have enough cases to fill them up? Multiply it out. There you go. You can predict your revenue for a PI firm. PI firms always tell me, oh, we can't possibly predict our revenue. I can tell you what your revenue is going to be next month. I can tell you what your revenue for the most part is going to be this quarter. I can get you you know, pretty good for the next six months. And for a one-year projection, I can be almost right on the nose. You know, it's funny. So from running a PI firm, I not feel the opposite totally, but like, it's so funny to me when it's like, all right, it's, it's August 29th. And you're like, all right, if this case closes today, it goes in on this month. But if this case closes in three days, then that <laughs> giant amount of money is on the next one or the next quarter. That's right. Fine. <laughs> For me, I, find, I always find it easier to do the yearly one than on like the month by month. I'm like, we were three days away from hitting all those numbers, but we've already blown it away by, you know, based upon this one case. Well, and here's the thing. It's all about the data. How do your cases settle? What does it look like? How, you know, what percentage of your cases settle pre-lit? What percentage go to litigation? In litigation, what percentage do you win? Once you go to litigation, you know, do you, there are some PI cases that will pay out two and sometimes three times over the life of the case. Are we factoring that in to your cash projections? It's, it's interesting to me because I always, I feel like PI firms underplay that time aspect of it. Like, all right, each case is worth this, but then what you're talking about really is like, all right, well, at this stage over this time at this stage. And I mean, it's just, yeah. it's an interesting concept because it does, like billing family law cases in the future is almost the same as resolving a PI case in the future. Yeah, it's, it's all about your, your inventory of cases, right? Whether, whether you're a family law firm 
Do you have enough inventory right now to continue to bill? And, and, and bill up to the potential of your firm. And if you're a PI firm, it's really understanding when those cases are going to come due. It's understanding what percentage you're going to lose, what percentage you're going to abandon, what percentage you're going to refer out. There, there are all these things to look at. And once you start to learn the averages, that's why I said, you know, I could do one month, three, three months, like one quarter, I, I can get you a ballpark. Six months, I can get you closer. One year, I can do it because now we're really starting to get some accuracy. Oh, uh, I see what you mean from the standpoint of having it over time. So, yeah. um, along those lines, though, and this is this one, maybe there is, maybe there isn't a right answer. How much do you have a firm segment across that? Right, like if they're doing estate planning and family law and criminal defense, I, I assume you want those treated separately. Yeah. And even from the PI standpoint. You know, how specific are you getting with the car accidents versus the slip and falls versus the medical malpractice versus whatever else? Very specific. So we find that the firms that do well are the firms that specialize. So I was working with a PI firm here in Texas a few years ago, and they did exactly what you said. They did hospital slip and falls and they did car accidents. And I made them do something that, you know, nobody likes to do. I'm like, I'm very sorry, but you're going to have to track your time. All right. I know everybody's rolling their eyes right now. I'm going to track my time. But here's what happened. We found out that to work a hospital slip and fall case took significantly less time than to work a car accident case. So that meant that we made more money because the the values were about the same. We made more money per hour of work on hospital slip and falls than we did on car accidents because every hospital slip and fall is almost identical, right? We could send out the same discovery time after time after time. So we got really efficient. And so by simply changing their marketing a little bit and marketing all for slip and falls and not for any, um, car accidents, they became a really profitable firm really fast. Do you, does the firm need some sort of um, like baseline, like baseline number, but like what, at what point is this not anecdotal? Like how many cases do you need to have to have enough to know the averages across time? Or is it really just whatever you have now? And then we'll keep editing the, the projections. Yes. We'll, okay. we'll take what you've got, we'll edit. So part of what we do, we have a lot of institutional knowledge. So, you know, we can apply that. Um, and then we layer on more the, the specifics of your firm. And um, if I've got 10 cases, I can do it. If I've got five cases, I can do it. But you're right. I take the first five and then we finish three more. All right. So now we look at it as eight. Now we look at it as 10. So and realize, Jordan, with a with a PI firm, the revenue you're talking about today is from a case you got 19 months ago. So you also have to look back and see what were you doing in your marketing 19 months ago that produced that revenue today? And how is the marketing you're doing today different 
And how is that going to impact your revenue in the future in 19 months? And I love that you mentioned that um, with that specific number, because the thing that I'm trying to warn may not be the right term, but ultimately you have a lot of these PI firms that like, look, COVID happened in March of 2020. Nobody drove for however many weeks. Your caseload went down and then the court system closed for some period of time. And so there's all these firms having, you know, um, uh, crazy years now, but ultimately two years of cases being resolved in one year. And then you keep projecting out for the cases that don't currently exist to resolve at a time because you've gotten all of 2021 and 22 resolved in 2022. Well, and the problem that a lot of firms are having is they are working their way through that backlog. And the owners aren't out marketing. They're not out networking. They're not out getting those new cases, which is going to create another boom bust cycle, right? They're in a boom right now, but in 19 months, if, if you're not out there marketing, you're going to be in a bust. I love that. And so really you're, you're free. It's interesting because you're freezing a moment in time now to look at a moment of time intake 19 months ago, to look at a moment in time marketing for let's call it, you know, the three months leading into that as well. Yeah. Uh, and as much as we, and as much as, you know, what uh, astrophysics, right. You can know something speed or its location, but not both. So here you are sitting, trying to project forward based mm-hmm. upon what we did two years ago before they had Brooke or before they had somebody who had the stuff on this or before they had us for the marketing stuff or whatever it was uh, is very interesting because you don't get, you don't get the same, I don't want to say immediate return, that's not right, but you're definitely having a much longer timeline to see the impact of so much of this stuff. With PI, you really are. With with hourly, it's much more immediate. But PI, yeah, you really have to, you have to look back and then you have to place that over what's happening right now to look at the change and the shift so that you can know what's going to happen in the future. So I love that we're getting into as best as we can predict or as best as we can project. Where do you work in uncertainty to that? Like, do you have some sort of, you know, are you working in um, cost of living increases for estimated growth in cases? Are you working in I mean, obviously the PI firm can raise their prices, but from, or a family law firm can raise their prices hourly, but from PI, like if this, you know, Florida pushed a $15 an hour minimum wage pushed by one of the large PI firms, expecting that the value of cases and lost wages would go up from there, et cetera. Like, are you making that? Look, caps are caps. When, when you max out that policy cap, you've maxed out the policy cap. There's, there's, Unless you can catch them on missing a deadline or something like that, which lets you remove those caps, you're stuck. Gotcha. All right. So, so for the most part, we are taking information in the past to project financial stuff in the future. Yeah. But also realize that when we get a case in, when we get a PI case in, if we're doing intake right, we're exploring things like what's the policy cap? So we can look at the average policy caps from 19 months ago and what it's paying out today and and see if the policy caps have gone up or down on those cases. So we can see it that way. I love that. I mean, it really becomes 
it really becomes like a scientific method, right? Like you have these data points and the more that you're, the more that you're collecting them, but also the more you're analyzing them, the more you can see how one point data point impacts the rest. Absolutely. The more data we have, the more accurate we're going to be. And so and, if you got- let me, let me just say, yeah, most firms come to us with no data or they come oh, yeah. to us with, with, with cruddy data. And, and so some of it, and some of us come to a, some people come to us and they're like, we don't have any data. And we're like, actually you do. Let us show you where it is. Because most firms don't realize that all those, that software that they're using really is collecting data. Um, it was but, interesting. A while ago, they had like 90% of firms don't track where their cases come from. And I was like, which is weird because if you use a CRM or if you use a case management system, there should be something in there. Like there's. Uh, all right. But, well, let's talk about that because that's actually the second lever. Oh, all right. Well, there we go. Yeah. There, beautiful segue. It's almost like I wrote that for you, right? <laughs> all right. So the second lever is knowing where every case comes from. It's case attribution. Cases do different things depending upon where they come from, right? Cases that are referred to you from your existing clients are going to close at a much higher rate. You're going to get more of them. Well, assuming you did a good job for the original client to tell their friend to come. Assuming you did a good job, but we're guessing you did a good job because you got the referral, right? No, totally. Um, PPC, so sorry, is probably going to close slightly lower than, you know, your client referrals. Maybe a, maybe a fourth as low, maybe 25% as high. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's stuff in there. Um, and let's be honest, from the from the client referral standpoint, this is the thing that I try to hammer home for everybody. Nobody can refer you better than a prior client. They've right. literally been through the process. They have gone through everything in there. They can really not set expectations, but truly explain exactly what they went through. Even your best non-client referral source is really just going off of hearsay, secondhand knowledge, you know, knowing who you are and not going through your actual firm system. So um, not that clients should be your highest referral source, but Brooke is totally correct. Clients should be the highest closing percentage of your referral sources. It's also the cheapest. Very true. Right? So we want to look at where your cases are coming from. We want to look at the closing rates. There are things that your closing rates will tell us. For instance, if your professional referrals are closing at a lower rate than your PPC, you got a problem. Because you need to go back to those referral sources and explain to them what a good case is. If you only do hospital slip and falls, you've got to go back to them and say, no, we no longer do car accidents. But when we're looking at it, we want to look at how many leads you're getting from each marketing channel. But hold on, can I jump in on something you just said before we go on? Yeah. Uh, so for everybody who has multiple referral sources, when you have this data, like Brooke's talking about, you not only know that referrals from clients are better or, or whatever it is, you know which referral sources close at a better rate. And so exactly what Brooke said in terms of they should close at a higher rate, you can also ask those referral sources, what are you saying about me? How are you phrasing this? How are you finding people that need my services? So when it comes time to have the discussion, 
about we don't do those cases anymore. Or if you're talking to people that have a much lower close rate, you can say, hey, some things that people have said in the past, you know, we were the best lawyer in the history of time, according to this one, you know, the Derek Zoolander School of Good Lawyering or, you know, whatever the award is. And they love this. And this, you know, one of our referral sources talks about we've had 10,000 prior cases we've worked on, et cetera. Like you can utilize this data on individual referral sources or individual clients to help other people become even better referral sources. Well, and, and, and you should give them a roadmap, right? So I, I was just on a referral networking call with someone who does something similar to what we do, but for smaller firms. And I got really specific. Who is your ideal client? What makes them pick up the phone and call you? What am I looking for? And if you are giving those pieces of information to your referral sources, you're going to get a better client back, right? Totally. And do it as a story. You know, fake the name, fake the name, no problem. We don't want to violate confidentiality, but hey, you know, Jane was on the way to school. She got sideswiped by an Amazon truck. She spoke to, you know, so-and-so Cairo down the street. They said, oh my God, you know, we're really helpful in cases with parents. She called us. Like that's how human exactly. beings shared information via storytelling around a campfire in a cave for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You don't have to And the story it. sticks in your mind, right? Totally. All right. So, so here's the data you want to collect. We want to know how many leads you get from every marketing channel. We want to know how much you spent on every marketing channel, right? How many of the leads signed up? How many of those cases made it to the end? So this is an important thing. There are always cases that fall out that you refer out. I mean, there's, there's stinky cases that you just abandon, right? And occasionally you lose. I know it's rare, but it happens. So once you have all of that, you can really start to look at some good numbers. You can calculate your cost per lead. Everybody knows how to do this, right? I got 10 leads. I spent $100. It's $10 a lead. Great. Um, You can also do your CAC, your case acquisition cost. And that's the spend divided by the number of cases signed up. And I like, and I think you need both because ultimately you're going to get like, it's so funny to me, law firms look at like, okay, we have a 95% profit margin on every case or whatever it is, but then you're like, all right, but then from that, you had to hire this person to run the social media, to lead to the post that didn't cost you anything to get those in. And so I really like. um, Well, and then the other thing is, is take the completed cases and go back and look at what the cost was to bring a completed case in. Because even after you acquired, even after they sign up, like I said, some are gonna fall out. They're gonna be abandoned, you're gonna lose, but that gives you more information. Now we're really starting to look at the cost of marketing all the way through the process. And especially for like, you talked about the niche ones. I mean, I know a ton of like social security disability attorneys that will, or medical malpractice where they'll vet 70 cases to find uh, the right one. That's um, right. And you've got the time to get all those, you know, the 69 you didn't take, 
the time it spent to vet them, the, the resources that went into um, going after them. And then if you were able to nurture those clients into referral sources or future business or something else, you really get a much better picture when you have this holistic view on it. Yeah. So there's a lot of data there and, and I do get pushback and Jordan, I'm sure you get pushback on this too. Like, I can't track all that. Yes, you can track it in your CRM. Um, it, like I said, a lot of this information is already being tracked. You just don't realize it. And you just don't know how to pull the information out of your CRM or out of your practice management system. Yeah, they look, Google wants you to spend money on Google. So they will natively track a number of things in Google Analytics. You just have to make sure like that's only part of the picture. You need to make sure your case management Instagram fills in the rest. And then when you combine those things, you get a much better picture. That's like, right. All right. You want to know the third lever? I do. Okay. Productive people. So it, there, there's so much to this, but here's what I hear all the time from attorneys. I, I hear a couple of things. I hear no one cares about my firm as much as I do. Well, of course, no one cares about your firm as much as you do. It's your firm. It's not their firm. They're just working there. Um, and my, you don't want them to care as much as you do because you don't want them to burn out because they can leave a lot easier than you can. You want like the, the quiet quitting thing. I'm like, no, you want them to actually be invested in you for the time you are paying them to be invested in you. Absolutely. Um, and you also don't want, so, so I hear, I hear they don't care as much as I do. I hear, um, I work harder than anybody else. And I hear, I'm afraid to train them because I'm afraid they're going to leave and open their own shop. Like, I don't want to train my competition. And, you know, there's a lot that you can do. And, and there are a lot of things that, that, you know, you talk about best practices, you talk about how to run your law firm and really, frankly, especially with PI, but we do this with non-PI firms also. It's all about running on the pod system. And I have so many attorneys that are like, I run on the pod system. I'm like, mm, you run on the pod system for getting work done. You don't compensate on the pod system. Mm. And that's something. So here's, here's what pods do. They help you understand capacity, right? This allows you to hire in advance of needing people, getting ahead of the curve. If one more person tells me, and this is a really hard hiring environment, I am going to like, I don't know, jump out the window. I am tired of hearing that. But if you've got six months notice that you need to hire a new attorney, okay, you got a better chance than if you have six days or six weeks of notice. And when you say pod system, so we're talking about an attorney oversees a paralegal or two, who oversees a case manager or two, who oversees a legal yep. assistant for your yep. whatever. And each pod works almost like a separate law firm. Like they're, they're all in there together. They work their cases from beginning to end. Nobody else works any of those cases. So the first thing that, that pods help you do is understand capacity. The second thing 
is it creates accountability in that attorney because he's now what sorry i want to address the first point when you talked about the the um bandwidth or sorry whatever you call it capacity so is that from the standpoint of because in like if you have a rock star paralegal it's easier for them to hold more but in the pod system you get a better understanding because there's multiple people invested in it yeah you start to really understand that you know let's let's use a couple of I'll, i'll do some examples you start to understand that in a pre-lit pod, so pods, you can run pods a different way, different ways. You can have pre-lit pods and litigation pods, or you can have a pod that runs all the way through. And I can talk about the pros and cons of those different things. But let's say you've got a pre-lit pod. We know that one attorney can handle between six and 10 paralegals. If those paralegals are doing settlements and all of that, and by digging down on your specific firm, we can understand. So now I'm going to make it up. Now I'm going to say that we have dug down. We know that each attorney needs eight full-time paralegals, one part-time paralegal, and they can handle 432 cases at any given time. Give or take one or two. Give or take one or two, right? So if we know that we are bringing in 50 new cases a month, and we know that we're closing 20 cases a month, that means we're bringing in net new 30 cases. You with me? Yep. The pod currently has 370 cases. How long until you need a new pod? Uh, Well, I guess what, you cap out in two months? So after that? Months. Yeah, you've got two months to form a new pod because this pod is going to have 400 by the end of this month and 430 by the end of next month. I'm glad I ate math test. Yeah, I know. I'm like trying to do the math in my head going, okay, you know, this is what happens when I choose random numbers. Now I have to do math in my head. So it gives you you a longer uh, leeway or a longer timeline to fill. If, if that pod only had 200 cases and they could pick up another 230, that's, I don't know, seven, six and a half months, seven and a half months. So, you know, all right, here's the second thing it does. It creates accountability in your attorneys. Those attorneys are running their pod. They're responsible for the pod. And then the next thing is the more they make, the more you make. And this is where we start to deviate from what most people think of as the pod, the pod system. I believe that you should bonus the attorney on the profitability of the pod. Give them a cut of pod profit. All the cases that come in, they're going to have to pay a marketing charge for each case. They've got a monthly overhead charge that they pay. They pay for their people. And then what's left, you can split. They can get anywhere from, you know, 25 to 50% of it. 
when you say like as opposed to them not getting bonus as at all or as opposed to them only getting bonus on a different section of cases or the overall firm like what's the as opposed to them getting bonus on revenue gotcha okay if they're getting bonus on revenue if they're getting bonus on the revenue that they bring in it doesn't matter like they could have 42 paralegals working for them, which would bring more revenue in, but they wouldn't be as efficient and it would be costing you a whole lot more, right? Gotcha. If you can do it with eight and you're doing it with 42 instead, that's a problem. Well, and then you also get them on the same side of the table to incentivize net profit instead of just gross revenue. Exactly. Because the more they make, the more you make. If, if they're running their own little mini firm, which is basically what we're talking about, right? Um, they're empowered to make decisions. And they can impact their own pay, whether it's by hiring more people and working less or by working harder and taking home more. So, um, you know, Mike Morse, right? Michael Morse? Yep. Okay. He had an attorney a couple of years ago that decided he was working too hard and he didn't want to work that hard. And Mike runs on the pod system. So that attorney said, I'm going to hire more people in my pod, which is going to make my pod slightly less profitable, which means I, as the pod owner, am going to make slightly less money, but that's okay with me because that's worth it. He was willing to trade some cash for the quality of life. And and it doesn't matter whether whether they're hiring more people and working less or they're working harder to take home more. Either way, more cash, more work is moving through your firm. And the more work, the more profit you get. Hopefully. Assuming you're profitable. That's right. Assuming that you've set this up right. And then the, the last thing that the pod system does, and we touched on this earlier, it keeps you from training your competitor because that attorney that's running the pod gets to do the fun stuff, right? Of running the cases and doing the actual legal work. They start to really appreciate all you do in terms of, of, of overhead, right? The billing gets out, the checks get written, the rent gets paid, the phones work. There's always toner in the car, in the copier. They don't have to deal with that. And then the third thing is, is they start to see the headaches of hiring and managing people. They see the effort that goes into marketing to get cases. And they also start to understand that here they are, They're sharing in the profit of their pod, but they don't have to put their personal guarantee on anything like loans or leases. So they get the fun part of owning a law firm and you get to educate them on the not not fun part. And I think that a lot of people kind of go off and they set up their own shop and they don't really realize everything that goes into owning a law firm. So when 
you are doing this, when you're running on the pod system, you're kind of giving them a peek behind the curtain. This is what it takes to do it. And a lot of times they're like, oh, I got a pretty cushy deal here. Which I think is funny because what the alternative, like if your concern is that you're training them for them to be able to leave, not doing that means you're not training them and hoping that they'll stay, even though they're not properly trained for the job that you want them to maintain, which makes no sense to me. (laughs) So when you do this, what we have found is that that revolving door of attorneys stops turning. You, they become um, much more profitable. They, they stay for a long time. Um, her team became very stable. And, and when your attorneys aren't rotating in and out, your paralegal stop rotating in, in and out. Um, your firm will dramatically increase the profitability because you're not short-staffed. And more well, work will move through your firm. Because it makes you more scalable, right? Like if you yeah. know, okay, one attorney with this many paralegals and this many case managers and this legal yeah. assistants handle this many cases, then like, all right, we double our marketing spend. We double the cases that come in from those things. Right. Increase the team. And, and you, you know that those people are going to be there, that they're not going to go off and do something else. And, and because those attorneys get a slice of the profit, they're really motivated to keep their pods productive. So the owner ends up making a lot more money. I also find, so like we did a, um, we did a review challenge at our office. So a couple of times I had done like whoever gets the most reviews, we'll give them whatever, a bonus, uh, extra time, whatever. The last time we did it, we switched it. And instead we made two teams and we had the teams go against each other and the winning team got stuff. Um, and I will tell you in the times we did with individuals, maybe we got four or five reviews. The time we did is at, across the whole firm. Yeah. We did it in teams and I think we got 12 in one month and we like, we just broke 150 in five years. So that was a, a very That's productive, huge. but it's, I think it's because we really pitted people with each other against other people they like, but from like the fun bragging rights. So I think from the pod, you have a much easier time then saying, okay, Pod A is more profitable per person than Pod B if we can increase. Or Pod A's average case value is this. Yours is that. What's Pod A doing that you're not doing? Man, they're going to figure that out. I love it. We are a team, a team within a team within a team, or however, however. Exactly. So. All right, predicting, predicting revenue, knowing where the cases come from, the attribution, and then productive people. Is there, if we start with nothing, right? Like a firm just wakes up tomorrow and says, oh my God, Brooke is right. I've been so wrong. Where do they start? Oh, geez. Um, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say predicting your revenue. Because you have no idea what's going to happen if you don't know what's, what money's coming in. We, we have to get that under control. And then part of that hand in hand is having productive people. Start to predict your revenue. Is it, 
is it where you need it to be? Is it not where you be need it to be? And then start looking at your people. I think the last one is the case attribution. That's going to be third. Um, because at that point we're tweaking, right? We're making improvements. We're optimizing where, you know, we, we need to know what revenue is coming in. So we know what money we have to spend and, and we need our people to be productive. So along those lines, like if you've got the firm, what, whatever their project, projections are, are kind of irrelevant, but they're, they're, they want to grow, right? So they've yep. got these projections, but they know that they want to exceed those in whatever the timeline is. Do they, how do you advise them on when they overextend themselves? Does that make sense? You mean, well, okay. Before so they've got a debt payment and payroll due that they can't make. Right. So like, got that firm that right now does zero in marketing and they make their $5,000 profitable and they know that they want to grow that, you know, if they add on, they've got the, the capacity to double their amount of cases, but right now they spend nothing on marketing. So yep. do they, do they take the 5,000 that they can project and put it for it and then see how much more profit they get? Do they leverage, you know, an extra 10 or 15,000 knowing that they've got the capacity if the numbers hold, like how do they, how do they make that decision? Here's the first thing we need to do. We need to figure out what the owner needs. You know, that expression, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Yes. If the owner is not making the money that they need, if they're not taking home what they need, and I'm not talking about, oh, I need a private plane and seven Rolls Royces so I can drive a different one every day. That's like, what do you, I, I talk about different levels. Well, I talk about living a life without compromise. And I ask people where they're compromising and I kind of bring it down to three levels. Where, how much money do you need to survive? We're not paying down debt. We're meeting our bills, but like, we're, we're not. Not want, but like truly need. Yeah, need. Um, what does comfortable look like? You know, and comfortable is we are paying down debt. We are, you know, doing retirement savings. And then there's like, what do you want? And that, please God, don't say a private airplane and seven Rolls Royces, though I do have a client right now who has put money down on not one, but two private planes. There's an expression in Texas. You can't ride two horses with one ass. Uh, I don't know how he's flying two planes at once, but whatever. Okay. Um, so I want to look at what's comfortable. I want our owners to be comfortable because if they're not comfortable, if they're not getting the money at home that makes them feel secure, they are not going to make good decisions in their business. They're going to make them from a place of fear. They're going to make them from a place of, from a lack mentality and just nothing good's going to come of that. So you know, we're going to look at it and say, what does the owner need? What do we have above and beyond that, that we can put back in the firm? Does the owner need that much money a month? And, and sometimes that's a hard conversation because, you know, we've had owners that are basically starving their firm. They're taking every penny out they can. 
So some of it is, okay, where's need, where's want, where's comfortable? And, and are we going to compromise? If, if you want to grow your firm, you can't take every penny out because we need to reinvest. And if, so, and at the same time, we don't want you starving at home. I love that. Yeah. Where's the balance? Because really until that owner feels comfortable until they're, they're not going to make decisions from a good place. Well, it's, it's the same thing for marketing, right? Like if you, if you come, if you call legalese and you're like, Hey, I need cases tomorrow, especially from a PI standpoint, it limits our, op- our options. Like pay-per-click uh, might be the only one because you have people already searching. You know, Maybe you can get something together on a little bit better of a timeline. Maybe you can buy some leads, whatever. Yeah. But, no, that, but you can't put that money towards any sort of long-term foundational brand building. Right. You need the cases now. As opposed to if you're comfortable, then okay, we put you know 50% towards cases today. We put 50% towards a 10x return next year that you can yep. afford like that bet for, I guess, probably for lack of a better term or that, that guesstimation it's, one. It's just, it's an allocation. What is going to serve us best? And, and what is our goal? There are some people that are like, I'm not worried about right now. I want to achieve this in five years. That's a different conversation. You're going to do something different with the money they give you to do marketing if you've got a five-year time horizon and no concern about today. Then, you know, someone that's like, I need money now. Makes total sense. So you, you've got to match it up. And there are a lot of people that are like, yeah, I don't need it right now. But in five years, this is what's going to be happening in my life. And this is where I need my business to be. Okay, great. We can build on that. So as we get towards the end, we talked about our three levers. We broke into the, we broke the productive people down into some of the subsections and the reasons behind it. We're talking about the numbers. Is there anything else you need to make sure that we cover? Well, if we're only talking about three levers, I think we've covered the three levers and some other stuff. I, yes, it's a very good, I, people I think are going to listen to this and be overwhelmed, but I think there's a lot of people that listen to this and think, oh my God, this is the next step. Like, oh, I already have that. I love you. You know, you were breaking down um, the data, you know, the leads per marketing channel, the spend on each channel, et cetera. I think there's some people that are doing half of that and realize why it's helpful is doing all of it. Well, and and let's face it, you're going to, you're going to do cost per lead first. And so, I don't know. Have you ever been to yoga? Uh, I've done yoga twice. Okay. So you go into yoga class and they're like, this is the next position we're going to do. And there are options. This is the beginner way to do it. This is the intermediate way to do it. And this is the advanced way to do it, right? For me, the last one is, this is the one you're going to try until you hurt something. And then you have to go back to the beginner one. Then you're going to go back to the first one. Um, it's, it's the same in your business. So when we're talking about a case attribution, the first thing you're going to figure out, what's my cost per lead? That's the basic. And then we're going to add 
cost per case, case acquisition cost. And then we're going to add, and then we're going to add everything that you do in your business is always a matter of refinement. What can we find that we can tweak just a little? And those small tweaks will make a huge difference, especially when you collect them over time. Totally. Well, and, and so much of this is psychology, right? Like it's, it's a, there's an art to a lot of what we're doing because we're involving people, whether it's a judge or the jury or the client, whatever it's. So as much as we can make these hard data points, we can make, you know, scientific method, subtle tweaks to see what the end results are at the end um, of everything. Yeah, absolutely. And people change, you know, at one point, I think the we're the most aggressive attorneys in town was probably the best ad. Whereas now I don't think it is for, I want to say everybody, but I'll leave open the, that narrow window that there's somebody. Out there. yes, we, uh, we've got, we've got Daryl, you know, Harry, the hammer. And then I live in Texas. So of course we have the Texas hammer here. So. It's, it's a thing. And it's, and the beauty of it, I, I always love having conversations with you, Brooke and people that really understand the financial thing. Because ultimately, like for me, the marketing stuff goes right into what you're talking about. Absolutely. And then you have like the second half of it. And it's the same thing for branding. And it's the same thing for tone of voice. And it's the same thing for, you know, like you, and the more consistency you have with your messaging, with who you are, with what you're doing, with how your firm shows up, the more you have the same dedication to the consistency across the numbers. And then really your law firm just becomes a machine. You know, you put a dollar in and three bucks come out or you know, whatever the numbers work out to. Right. And and really, so I'm going to, I'm going to step into your area for a moment here. By all means, plenty of room. I think my personal opinion, my person, like I went to grad school. I thought I was going to get a marketing degree after like the first case study we did. I'm like, screw that. I'm going to finance where there's a right answer. But um, I feel like the closer your brand is to who you actually are, the more authentic, the, the more believable it becomes. Don't you agree with that? Oh, totally. It's look, this is going to be a little bit hyperbole, but if not, then you're lying. And ultimately they need to remember the lie. And while it's, maybe it's a gray area, not black and white, but yeah, like the more that you just put yourself out there, the more that you have your firm support, who you truly are, the more that you make all this consistent the less you have to remember who you're supposed to be in that moment or the less you, or the easier it is to make a decision that you haven't made a hundred times before. Like what's the right thing for me to do in this moment? What's the right thing for my firm to do in this moment? Um, Totally. Absolutely. And you know, there's also not kind of that cognitive dissonance for clients who come in and here you are, you know, I'm the hammer blah, 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 blah. And then they come in, you're like, hi, nice to meet you. And, you know, you're quiet and like that doesn't match the commercial and they're going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was sold one thing. And then here's this person that is totally different. Hence the Hawaiian shirt. So I can be like, Hey, come on in. How's it going, dude? Everything. All right. You doing all right. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to know, is that your child on the shirt? Is it weirder if it's not? Cause everybody asked that question. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Who the hell is going to get a shirt of a four-year-old? that isn't related to them and then just wander around. But he is, I mean, he's a cute kid. I'll, I'm biased, but. But he's not uh, yours. No, no, that's my kid. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it is yours. Oh, okay. I just, 
half the time I tell people no, it's not. I just bought a shirt with a random four year old on it, and then they don't really know yeah. is. So yeah, no, that's my son. He's uh hopefully somewhere out there not having destroyed stuff. We'll, oh, good uh, luck with that. Five more minutes. All right, so I want to talk about our, our um, next episode, and then I want to come back to you for your final level of wisdom, your biggest takeaway. Next week, so nine, uh, I guess nine, eight, we have it, so maybe more than next week. I can't do math, or maybe it's next Thursday. Next Thursday. So not this Thursday, but next Thursday, we have Adam Williams on. Uh, Adam's going to talk to us about the 26,000 reasons to build your teams. So ultimately, we're talking about the employee tax credit. Uh, but really we're talking about the benefit of building a team that stays of having the awesomeness. It'll dovetail very nicely into the productive people part of that. So that will be not this Thursday, but next Thursday at one thirty with Adam Williams, uh, who also has, I think one of the most genuine personal brands of anybody online is a really interesting way of being funny, but also serious, but also being approachable. Um, so we'll talk about some of that stuff. That being said, Brooke, I know we have done, we have gone through a lot. I take a, I've been taking notes so we can cut out clips. And normally I'm shooting for three. For you, I have eight. Um, Woohoo! I'm so, a big yeah. overachiever. So there we like, go. That, that strokes my ego beautifully. I love it. <laughs> but for anybody who's listening to this for the last hour, 57 minutes at this point, if they remember nothing that you said, what would be your biggest piece of advice? What would be the most important thing for them to take away from this so that they can be the exhibit A of a successful lawyer, like the ones that work with you? I think really, and, I, and I'm not sure I said it in this way. Owning a law firm is like eating an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. So it really is do one thing and then do the next thing, and then do the next thing, and then do the next thing. Because you said it, if you look at all of this, everything we've talked about today, it's pretty overwhelming, right? Um, So I think that just what is the next thing you're going to tackle? How do you tackle that? And there's a great book called um, Who Not How. By Dan Sullivan. Yeah. I think that's a great book because you're not always the who. And the faster you realize that, the more progress you're going to make towards your goals. So what's the next bite you need to take and who is the right person to hack it off and put it in a bite-sized chunk for you to swallow? It may not be you. It may be somebody else. It, Jordan, it may be someone like you. It may be someone like me. It may be someone you haven't met yet. But once you start thinking that way, things get easier and the people present themselves and you start to become, you start to let people excel in the areas where they excel, where they have fun and things get done that way. And it's awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you for everybody who's been listening. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, come on back next Thursday, 9-8 at 1.30 for Adam Williams. That being said, for anybody who is smart enough to have listened to Brooke for the last hour and wants to learn more of her amazing wisdom and insight, what's the best place for people to stay in touch with you? Um, Our website, cathcap.com, C-A-T-H-C-A-P.com. You can email me directly from there. And if you've got any questions, I'm happy to chat. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jordan.